Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Emperor hoped to end the squabbling once and for all. Ludwig III, a land-holding count, and Archbishop Conrad I were locked in a feud. You see, Conrad wasn't being a good neighbor. At least, that's what Ludwig thought. Conrad had started building a castle near Ludwig's territory and it all seemed a little aggressive. To Ludwig, it seemed that Conrad was staking a claim in a space that wasn't exactly his. In fact, the territory was, and had for a long time, been pretty contested. So, to build a castle there was a move of confidence that didn't sit well with Ludwig. It didn't seem fair. As the story goes, the emperor directed King Heinrich VI to call in his trusted advisors, counts, and other nobles in order to convene at St. Peter's Church in Erfurt, Germany in July of 1184. He wanted mediation, and he wanted it fast. A judgment would be made on what to do about the land, and that would hopefully be the end of the story. But of course, it wasn't. But not for reasons that you might imagine. As the 60 or so noblemen ambled into the church on that warm summer's day, the atmosphere was tense. There were politics and power at play, and those at the center of the dispute were being called in to explain themselves. The floorboards creaked and groaned as they shuffled in to face their boss. Everyone settled in, and the king called the meeting to order. But if anyone was worried about the bowing of the floor beneath their feet, they certainly didn't speak up. Within moments of kicking off the mediation, the floorboards splintered, cracked, and fell out from under them. Everyone standing there was pitched into the darkness below. But oh, if it were only just darkness, it would have been that much more simple. It wasn't. Instead of being dropped into, say, an open cellar, the 60-odd noblemen met with a much worse fate. They had collapsed into the church's large communal latrine area. The latrine couldn't withstand the impact of their flying bodies, and with that the latrine area also collapsed in on itself, dropping their bodies down another level, into the festering cesspool of feces. There was no way to quickly rescue the fallen. The unluckiest of folks drowned when their lungs filled with human waste, 
or were asphyxiated by a cloak of noxious fumes. By chance, the king, Archbishop Conrad I, and Landgrave Ludwig III survived. Evidently, they had gone off into the church's side nook to have a private conversation just before the floor gave out, and since they were closer to the walls, they were able to hold on to the iron rails of the windows until their cries for help were answered. If the dispute they set out to resolve that day ever got settled, well, that remains unclear. What's likely true is that the outcome of this meeting was something that they could never have anticipated. The latrine disaster remains a dark and squeamish moment in our history, but it's true. Everybody poops. Historically, this universal need has been experienced very differently depending on the time, place, social class, and technology of the day. At the core of these differences, though, is a uniting truth. Sanitation and hygiene are inextricably linked to our everyday health. It's not always as dramatic as it was that day in medieval Germany, but when poorly executed, the results have historically been positively deadly. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Bedside Manners. It's hard to overstate how important poop is to humans. When we're born, we poop. After we die, our bowels often let go one last time. And in between those moments, the experience of relieving ourselves often functions as a barometer for health, a litmus test of our body's basic functionality. Poop offers important insights, but we've developed a squeamishness around this particular mundane event. The universal experience of emptying our bowels has long been met with silence and shame, embarrassment, and unease. Those who are too casually honest about their bathroom adventures might be given side-eyes. We might scold our own kids for their bad language, accusing them of having a potty mouth. What goes down the loo is considered far from polite conversation. But it wasn't always this way. The link between bowel contents and shame is a contemporary evolution. Life always follows poop, in everything from oral tradition to scholastic analysis. Cultures across the world are home to origin stories wherein land masses and life arises from the droppings of mythical creatures. Take one tale from the Chukchi people of Siberia, which describes the origin of the world resulting from a creature known as the first bird relieving itself. Solids became land, liquid became waterways. And if folklore tells us that the world arose from waste, some scholars believe that civilization itself could have risen from it. Excrement is chock full of nutrients that the soil and the critters living in it absolutely love. And as our early ancestors spread out from Africa, it's possible that they noticed that the places in which they stayed longer or revisited year after year seemed to be extra fertile. It's possible that these rhythms of return gave way to farming and then to the rise of agrarian societies. But as humans settled down, their waste began to pile up. In excess, this waste started to become a problem. It stank and crawled with vermin. It was clearly becoming a nuisance, and what was to be done with it became a long adventure that occupied many of our ancestors. The earliest communal restrooms can be traced to Mesopotamia in the 3rd millennia BC. Some scholars believe that trade routes gave rise to public rest stops, which, if you've ever been on a long road trip, is a welcome sight. Because all early civilizations rose along water sources, depositing waste in waterways became a practical solution to a stinky problem. The Minoan civilization, which thrived between 2600 and 1100 BC on Crete and the Aegean Islands, has been credited as the first to do this systematically. In fact, they've been credited with building the world's first flushing toilets and underground waterways designed to carry their waste away. The ancient Romans, too, were known for their waste disposal. 
But their strategizing came through utilizing cesspits, sewers, and basic street runoffs. They eventually built the Cloca Maxima, Latin for the Greatest Sewer, around 600 BC, which moved millions of gallons of water per day. The wealthy constructed public latrines and marketplaces, not out of the goodness of their hearts nor for the health of their slaves, but so that they wouldn't have to step in or see human waste. Across the world and centuries later, in 17th century Osaka, Japan, Shimogo collectors would travel across the city, gathering what roughly translates in English to night soil. The word's most literal translation shows up as fertilizer from the bottom of a person. They were in the business of gathering human feces, bringing the waste down to the docks and loading it into the bellies of waiting sewage ships. From there, the boats would transport the human waste to farmers, who would compost it and transform it into incredibly rich fertilizer. Those farmers then fed the urbanites. It was a beautiful, albeit smelly, cycle. Without them, without this cycle, Japan would have been a much hungrier place. Life beget poop, and poop beget life. But life doesn't always mean health. As history tells us, we know that toilets, and what goes in them, could be a profound source of illness. But although humans did their best to keep their waste out of sight, some lingering issues meant that it was never out of mind. In the summer of 1858, London, the largest and wealthiest city on Earth at the time, had a problem. It had been an unseasonably hot, dry, and wildly unpleasant summer, so much so that it had even won itself a nickname, the Great Stink. No one could escape the heavy blanket of stench fueled by the putrid state of the River Thames and the crumbling state of London's sewer system. The populations in areas surrounding the River Thames were rapidly expanding, more than doubling between 1800 and 1850. The river had long served as an out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution for what to do with human waste for centuries. People depositing their waste in it and assuming the current would just take it all far, far away. This was all compounded by a relatively new invention that was beginning to work its way into homes of wealthy Londoners, and which was later described by some as the most life-saving invention of all time, the flushable toilet, enclosed in water closets. The water closets, which were just toilets enclosed in small rooms, discharged far more liquid into the cesspools than the average chamber pot. And as this innovation became more and more popular, and people began installing more of them in their homes, the household cesspools began to fully saturate and overflow. Soon, the streets were being flooded by these cesspools, spreading stench, vermin, and disease. As for the poor River Thames and all the people it served, the unusually hot summer had caused her to dry up more than usual. What was revealed in the lower waterline were festering masses of hot, baking waste. In a time before germ theory became popularized, it was believed that most diseases were borne by miasma, or the lethal vapors given off by decaying organic matter. It's reported that those who went too close to the Thames suffered from fainting spells and seizure fits. Some would vomit. One legend reports that a woman tried to end her life by jumping into the river, but was first knocked unconscious by its fumes. The government attempted to neutralize this problem by dumping chalk lime, chloride of lime, and carbolic acid into the river, but efforts fell short. Sanitary conditions had reached epically bad proportions, and the problem, of course, was worse than just the smell. You see, London had suffered a series of cholera outbreaks, and at that point, it was believed that cholera was contracted by inhaling bad air. With this logic, it was assumed that the foul River Thames was a health hazard. 
And it was. The Thames was likely to blame for a lot of the city's illnesses, but not for the reasons that Londoners thought. It turns out that cholera wasn't airborne, but it was wasteborne. Toilets were becoming more popular and moving beyond the ranks of the financial elites. More sewage was being dumped into the River Thames day by day, even though it was often the main water supply that people used in their homes. It was bathing water. It was drinking water. It took four decades before new, more appropriate drainage systems were engineered and fully implemented. Toilets were beginning to catch on across the world through the 19th century, and cities were struggling to keep up. Across the pond, another public sanitation crisis was brewing. This one, though, would be the impetus behind one of the greatest marvels of engineering in recent history. Those who developed Chicago only had to look to Europe to see what happens when a city grows too large too quickly. In 1850, Chicago's population was nearly 30,000. By 1853, just three years later, it had doubled. In 1854, a cholera outbreak killed 6% of the city's population, and leaders knew that they had to do something drastic. They knew that illness was linked to waste, and it just seemed that waste was everywhere. So when the city appointed its Board of Sewage Commissioners in 1855, they tasked engineer Ellis Sylvester Chesborough to do what seemed impossible. No city in America had a sewage system, and they wanted him to create the first one. After striking out on a handful of ideas, he ultimately settled on the final plan. The city would need to drain the sewage into the river, which would then be drained into Lake Michigan, diluting the sewage and dispersing what they believed to be the disease-ridden stench. But first, in order to do this, he would need to raise the city. Chicago was roughly sea level, and he needed it to be higher. At its highest point, the city sat only about five feet above the surrounding waterways. And the success of Ellis' solution was predicated on his ability to get gravity to work for him. Starting the next year and carrying on for the next 20, Chicago raised its city streets anywhere from 2 to 14 feet. The new streets looked like ramps and were often level with the second story of some homes. Many of those ground floors even became cellars. And this worked according to Ellis's plan. Things seemed to be draining as they should, but the lake still supplied the city's drinking water, and it became evident that widespread contamination was still only a matter of time. In the back of his mind, he knew this. He knew the choice was a flawed one, but he thought it was the best one he could make, given the information that he had available to him at the time. As a more permanent solution for handling the waste from the booming city, Ellis proposed something much more dramatic, something unheard of. He wanted to reverse the direction of the Chicago River entirely, sending it backward away from Lake Michigan and into the Mississippi. He identified a subcontinental divide just west of the city. He believed if they could only dig a small, deep canal through it, then gravity would do its job and carry the water away. But this idea, of course, seemed to be marvelous and, to some extent, entirely short-sighted. It would be a feat of engineering, but not necessarily of sanitation. They were worried about miasma's stench and hadn't come to understand that the pathogens were in fact waterborne. It just sent the problem to their neighbors downstream. Chicago claimed that the solution was dilution. But downriver, St. Louis, Missouri didn't buy it. So while the city explored its legal options, the citizens of Chicago clamored for their clean water. At last, after many years of delays, on September 3rd of 1892, thousands of diggers got to work. They brought their shovels, horses, wagons, and dynamite to carve a new pathway for the river. 
In all, they excavated more than 42 million cubic yards of rock and soil to the tune of 28 miles. On January 2nd of 1900, quietly and under the cover of night, a few canal commissioners, their wives, and a small number of reporters broke the final dam, connecting the canal to the Des Plaines River, which then linked up with the Mississippi and then finally flowed out into the Gulf of Mexico. And it worked. After a few days' time, the Chicago record reported the river to be turning blue. Some even noted the clear-colored ice that flowed by backwards. The citizens of Chicago would stop to stare in amazement at what had taken place in their city and to their water. And as they did, they hoped for brighter and healthier days ahead. Keeping ourselves free from waste and disease has driven us to major technological undertakings. In the case of rerouting the Chicago River, more earth was moved in that effort than ever before in human history. The machines used for excavation developed and used in Chicago would eventually help dig the Panama Canal just a few years later. For the city's efforts, their problem of the buildup of raw sewage and industrial waste contaminating their city's water was solved. As the construction continued in years to follow, new extensions of the canal were also built. But of course, this problem merely shifted. Those downstream were less happy, and a host of environmental issues developed as a result. St. Louis continued its crusade, but the city of Chicago denied its culpability. In the first pollution case ever brought before the Supreme Court, Chicago defended itself by pointing its finger at the several other cities closer to St. Louis that were discharging their waste into their waterways. It was determined that St. Louis had no recourse and ended up building a filtration system for the incoming water. Others were concerned with the diversion of fresh water away from Lake Michigan and its surrounding areas. The Supreme Court ruled that locks and gates had to be installed to help control this process. But according to one report, over 23,000 gallons of fresh water are still diverted downstream every second. The influx of water into the Mississippi has caused a host of other environmental disasters. It flooded farmland, introduced invasive species, created uninhabitable environments, and brought pollution all the way to the Gulf. But it's not just Chicago, and it's not just the Mississippi River. Even today, cities across the world still pump their wastewater, untreated, into their waterways. Sometimes it's on purpose, other times these sewer systems fail due to watery weather events. We now have a better idea of how to manage waste-borne illnesses. We teach small children to wash their hands and shudder when we notice someone walking out of a public restroom without doing so. But around the world, sanitation measures and their failings are still responsible for the spread of disease and death. The Centers for Disease Control released a study in 2020 finding that 2.3 billion people lacked basic hygiene services, and 1.6 billion people had access to hand-washing facilities that lacked water or soap. They went on to estimate that if everyone had appropriate resources, access, and education about handwashing, one million deaths could be prevented each year. So don't forget to soap up. After all, clean hands save lives. For something that's such a benign act of the everyday, it's fascinating to know that relieving oneself has such a dynamic and complicated history. Stick around through this brief sponsor break, and my teammate Robin Miniter will tell you one more story about the invisible, everyday world of sewer systems. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. 
BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. Almost eight and a half million people call New York City home, and you can find just about anything there. And with that kind of density, there are always bound to be some surprises. In 2010, an alligator was spotted in the streets. It naturally caused a bit of a stir, but it probably didn't cause a lot of shock. After all, if you've spent any time there, you've definitely heard about the legends of gators hanging out below the city streets. On February 9th, 1935, the New York Times published a headline that read, alligator found in uptown sewer. As the story went, a group of teenage boys were shoveling snow down a sewer drain when one yelled in excitement. He had seen movement and told his friends what he spotted was, in fact, an alligator. The story then goes on to report that they lassoed the creature with a clothesline, hauled it out, and beat it with their shovels. At 125 pounds and 8 feet long, it was also now very, very dead. Stories of city sewer gators can be traced back to the early 1920s. To sell copies and turn a profit, it wasn't uncommon for newspapers to publish hoaxes, the original fake news, if you will. Famously, the New York Sun ran an entire series about creatures on the moon, chock full of fake interviews and everything. But in the case of the boy's unfortunate gator, there was a kernel of truth to be had. Their creature was, indeed, real. And upon further investigation, it seems that the gator had hitched a ride aboard a ship coming up from Florida and accidentally gotten itself plopped into the East River. Sewer inspectors themselves first reported seeing gators below the streets in 1935. The commissioner of New York City, Tenny May, believed that these men were just drinking on the job. But he went down for himself, and he was shocked at what he found. His flashlight showed gators indeed, averaging about two feet in length. So he set out on a campaign to rid the sewers of them and hired men with 22 caliber rifles to do it. Two years later, he announced that they had all been exterminated. At least, the alligators underground. But the alligators kept popping up. They were found north of Manhattan in Westchester County and on a subway platform in Brooklyn. A barge captain even pulled a five-footer out of the East River in 1937 and reportedly decided to keep it as a pet. It was reported that the Bronx River was swarming with them, and authorities set out to capture them for an installation at the zoo. But where did all of these gators come from, you might ask? Well, before Amazon took over, we used to order a lot of things from the back pages of all kinds of magazines. 
And in the backs of the magazines aimed at young boys, they sold all kinds of stuff. Practical jokes, card games, and even baby alligators. For one fifty a pop, you could have your very own baby dinosaur shipped to you right through the U.S. Postal Service. It was a brisk business in those days, especially for the kids whose parents wouldn't get them a dog. And I'm sure that there were many parents who, upon meeting their new roommate, wished they had just gotten their kid a puppy. And then probably made their kid flush their new friend down the drain. Grim and Mild Presents Bedside Manners was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Robin Miniter. Writing for this season was provided by Robin Miniter with research by Sam Alberti, Taylor Hagerdorn, and Robin Miniter. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. You can learn more about this show, the Grim and Mild team, and all the other podcasts that we make over at GrimAndMild.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.